Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Catherine Wu. And I'm Kathleen Davis. A few months ago, we got a voicemail from a listener asking a very important scientific question. Why is there reason cats purr? I'm just very interested in that because my eight-month-old cat is like always purring. I wonder why they purr. Wow, what a great question. And today we're going to try to get to the bottom of it. Last month, I actually looked into why cats purr for a piece in The Atlantic. I was inspired by my own two cats, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, When I have bad insomnia, their purrs are pretty much one of the only things that can lull me to sleep. Wow, so soothing. Katie? Katie? Katie, wake up, wake up. Oh my gosh, Kathleen, I am so sorry. That just put (laughs) me right to sleep. Oh, all right, I'm here. Kathleen, you're a cat person too, right? Have you thought about why your cat Miguel purrs? Yes, I have thought about why my cat purrs. He purrs when he's happy, but he also purrs when he's hungry and when he thinks he's about to get food. So I have a lot of questions about what's actually going on in his little body when he purrs. But I mean, listen to these good vibrations. So we wanted to see what other cat lovers knew about cat purring. We sent our talented sci-fi colleagues, Diana Montano and Kyle Marion Viterbo, to the Meow Parlor, a cat cafe in New York City, to find out. I have heard that cats purr when they are happy. I also know that Sometimes they do it when they're unhappy because it soothes them. I know that they purr if they're like extremely satisfied or happy, but then I also know there's a morbid one where like if they're about to die, they also purr. I mean, I have a friend whose cat Haku is constantly purring, like every second. Sometimes if you're quiet at night, you'll hear him purring like as he's walking down the hall, he's so loud. I would say that the kittens purr a lot more. I notice a lot more purring from just like you touch them and they're like, oh my God. Um, And the adults are like, okay, (laughs) what what are you doing? (laughs) Um, Could not tell you scientifically why that is happening though. (laughs) What an emotional roller coaster too. There's happy theories. There's kind of not so happy theories. I feel like it's time to dig into the science. So joining me now to talk more about what we do and don't know about why and how cats purr is my guest. Robert Eklund is a professor of language, culture, and phonetics at Linköping University in Linköping, Sweden. Dr. Eklund, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's start with the basics of purring. What exactly is a purr and how is it different from another cat vocalization like a meow? 
if you use a stringent definition, it should be a continuous, alternating, aggressive and ingressive sound produced by the lungs. And that means that the lungs push and draw air in and out of the lungs and through the voice box. It sounds like purring is the ability to sort of vibrate one's vocal cords while both inhaling and exhaling. Yeah. And to be exact, inhaling and exhaling uh, using the lungs. So if you listen to purr or even try to mimic it, it, it would be like, where every second phase is done by exhalation and every second phase is done by inhalation. Not all cats purr. Uh, lions, tigers, leopards, and jaguars uh, definitely don't purr, but they can roar instead. And the opposite uh, goes for the cats that purr. They, they can purr, but they can't roar. Not only cats purr, it's been proven that genets uh, purr, polecats purr, and possibly even the fossa, which is endemic to Madagascar. Uh, how come some of them don't purr, like the four big ones I mentioned before, and the smaller ones all purr, uh, as far as we know. And already in 1833, the very famous zoologist uh, uh, or biologist Richard Owens, he noticed that if you dissect cat voice boxes, you will find the difference. One of the sort of uh, structures in the voice box is made out of cartilage in the big, bigger cats, the roaring cats. Whereas that same structure is ossified. It's made out of bone in the smaller cats that do purr. And he made that the explanation and, and, and another zoologist sort of draw the conclusion. So if you have a cartilage, it, you can stretch the voice box. And if you can stretch it, you can roar. And if it's uh, solid as uh, in bone, you can't stretch your voice box. And that results in the drum roll, as it were, that is called purring. The thing is that it's uh, agreed right now that that can't be at least not the only explanation. There are other differences as well. And so when we're talking about the animals that can do the bona fide purr, I understand that cheetahs are among them, among the big cats that are able to do this. Uh, and you've recorded this, right? So uh, I did a small paper. I recorded the cheetah, the, the huge and very kind cheetah cane. It's one of the biggest cats I've seen. And then I recorded my girlfriend's tiny little domestic cat and produced, wrote a paper with Gustav Peters. What was funny is that although the little cat weighed around seven pounds and the cheetah weighed in at uh, 180 pounds, the frequency, the, the sort of the tone where purring was produced was about the same. If you translate it to a key on the piano, it would be basically the same keys, despite this huge difference in size. I want to get to the big central question here. Why do cats purr? Most of us who have been around a purring cat, I think, have this connection between purring and happiness. But that's not always the case, right? And that is actually one of the things that is established. Cats can purr also when they are in pain, when they give birth, when they are about to die, mm. and when they are very nervous or uncomfortable. The cheetahs, who are really prominent purrers, they, they purr like crazy, If at least if they are tame. Uh, yeah. uh, why cheetahs, we don't know, because they are out in the wild. 
And I've asked people who are working with cheetahs, you know, I've bred cheetahs for decades, and they have never heard a cheetah purr for any other reason than being very happy and content. Wow. So why why do domestic cats purr for different reasons, or at least in different contexts? Vocalizing is some kind of signaling signaling to the outer world what's going on. And either within your species or to another species. And purring in this case could be labeled as as some kind of signaling to the outer world that leave me alone. Uh, I want things to stay the way they are. Uh, And above all, I don't pose a threat to anyone. Mm. If you're happy and content, if you're afraid, if you're dying, if you're giving birth, you definitely don't pose a threat to your, your surrounding fellow cats or other animals. And so, you know, part of this cat-human connection, I think a lot of people have in recent years been floating around this very interesting claim that cat purring might have special healing powers, either for the cats that are doing the purring or other animals around them, maybe even us. Have you heard about this? And is there any evidence to back up this magic healing power? No, there is no scientific evidence for it. On the other hand, it is known that uh, cats are beneficial to your health, at least. Having a purring cat on your chest definitely does good things for your own health. The specific claim here, which was made around 20 years ago, was that purring help healing fractures. It was a suggestion. It had never been tested, neither by the author uh, nor by anyone else. And the problem here is that it would be, well, the problem, actually, happily, it would be very hard to uh, be allowed to perform such an experiment, because how would you do it? You would uh, take two cats, preferably siblings, you would break their bones, and then you would prevent one cat from purring and get the other cat to purr as hell, uh, like crazy, and and then check whether the fractures heal faster uh, in the purring cat. And of course, you can't do that. No ethical committee in the world would approve such an experiment. And the idea as such is not uh, stupid. It, it, it sort of makes sense. And NASA did some vibration uh, studies uh, because astronauts being in space for a long time, they lose both muscle tissue and also bone structure. So they tried vibration plates and stuff like that to see whether that would be a way of uh, sort of preventing this uh, to happen. And I s- never saw anything published. And it just just faded away without anything being published, which I take as some kind of evidence that they, they didn't get the results they wanted. All right. So, I mean, you've just given a pretty key example of why it is pretty tough to study, you know, purring in general, its effects. And also, I imagine, you know, the mechanics are really hard to test. Uh, Why is it so hard to study purring? I mean, cats do it all the time. Why can't we just see what's going on? Well, exactly when I I did this recording of Kane and and wrote my comparison uh, between the domestic cat and Kane, I was affiliated with the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm doing fMRI analysis of human brains. And I spoke to the professor there, he's one of Sweden's most famous scientists, and we discussed this and he said, yeah, let's put the cheetah in the MRI bore and see what, how, he, how he does it. 
And the thing is, you already guessed it, is that it would be impossible to get a cat to purr in one of these really loud, scary machines. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. If if it were if it were humans who purred, we would know how we do it. Because you, you would take students uh, off them a cinema ticket or something like that to put them in the board and ask them to purr and they would do it. With animals in general, and with cats in particular, you, you can't tell them what to do and when. Right. Oh, this is seemingly the eternal problem with cats. So interesting, but so hard to study. My cats certainly don't do anything on command. That's sort of the, the definition <laughs> of cat. Right. Well, there is clearly so much more to learn about cat purring, and I look forward to your work and others' work. I'll be following all of this closely. I think that is all the time we have, but thank you so much, Dr. Eklund, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to talk about cats. <laughs> Absolutely. I fully agree with that. Robert Eklund is a professor of language, culture, and phonetics at Linköping University in Sweden. If you or your kids have a science question that's been nagging at you, we want to know. Share it with us on social media or go to sciencefriday.com slash contact to get in touch. We'll try our best to answer it on the show. We have to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking about Star Wars. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Katherine Wu. And I'm Kathleen Davis. I don't know about you, but when I think of famous cinematic moments, one of the first that comes to mind is Darth Vader's signature line. I am your father. James Earl Jones voiced the Star Wars villain for 45 years until last month when he officially stepped down. If you're wondering who's replacing him, well, that's complicated. It's not an actor, but an AI mimic one that recreates James Earl Jones's voice from nearly 50 years ago. The Star Wars filmmakers teamed up with a Ukrainian AI company called Respeecher. Respeecher converts performances from one actor into the voice of another. Take a listen. Hey, this is James. I'm an actor and this is my real voice. In this video, I'll demonstrate a couple of new features of Respeecher's speech-to-speech voice cloning engine. Obviously. I can speak with another person's voice. But notice that now the sound is 44.1 kilohertz. The company's work has appeared in the Star Wars canon already, as young Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. And just last month, they debuted their recreation of Darth Vader in the TV show Obi-Wan Kenobi. Check this out. I am what you made me. Pretty uncanny, right? The company's path to the big screen has not been easy. Sure, they knew it would be hard to make a perfect mimic of such a legendary actor, but what they didn't expect was to have to do so under air raids and gunfire as Russian troops invaded their nation. Joining me to talk about all of this are my guests. Dmitro Bielevitsov, Chief Technology Officer at Respeecher, based in Kiev, Ukraine, 
and Bogdan Belayev, sound engineer at Respeacher based in Lviv, Ukraine. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, hello. Bogdan, let me start with you. Are, are you a Star Wars fan? I'm a fan from my childhood. When I was a kid, I watched the second episode of Star Wars. It didn't start like from uh, <laughs> the first one. <laughs> after, after the premiere, uh, yeah, I was into it, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. I imagine it would be really exciting to learn that you would be working on the Star Wars shows then. Oh yeah, I, I I won't believe it if I if I knew that like <laughs> you know. So, what materials do you need to recreate a voice? Basically, we need recordings of the uh, source speaker. It's like the actor who is uh, going to be uh, converted into the target voice, and uh, the target recordings, which are recordings of the voice that are we going to convert to. And where do you actually get these target voice samples from? Yeah, that really depends on uh, on the situation. So there are projects where we could just take uh, ideal recordings, like from ADR, if, if we're working on a movie. But if we're working on a like historical character or someone whose young voice we want to make instead of their current voice, well, in that case, we'll have to go back and look for old recordings. and. Uh, for like big movie projects, usually the client would have some internal like archival recordings that we would uh, end up using. And how much tape is enough to build a good replica of a person? Yeah, it really depends on how good the data is. If we have like great ADR recordings, then we'll, we would be totally fine with 20 to 30 minutes of recordings. But in practice, especially with these characters that we don't have a good homogeneous recordings of, like for those cases, we would have to um, use as much data as we can. And, and uh, like an hour or two hours would be great in these cases because, you know, some data is corrupted. Some data is, uh, is has some noises, but we could still kind of pick out a half an hour of, of good material out of it. Okay, so you're using this tape to build a model of a target voice. And you have the performance of an actor whose voice you want to change. What aspects of speech does this model retain from the original source performance? And what might get changed during that conversion? We take content, we keep the content, and we keep the performance, like the intonations, the level of arousal, whether the voice is whispering or half whispering or the projection. So we take all that from the source and then we replace their vocal apparatus in a way and we change the timbre. Also, we change slight phonetic kind of habits. So when someone tends to have like a, a very peculiar S or F, the network would uh, replace that. So you don't need to actually try to mimic that as an actor. So it sounds like you still need at the core of this performance, a great performance. You still need that source actor to put on a show, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So you just need to, you know, use the linguistics and use the intonations and the style of acting, but you don't need to try to imitate any physical aspects of how that person sounds. Interesting. So as we heard a little bit earlier, your product really does sound like a real voice. I think if I were watching that Star Wars show, I might not even realize that 
it is a clone voice. Can you, as the creators of this technology, tell the difference between a real voice and your conversions? Uh, yes, but I think I was go I, I was hoping that Bogdan would would say yes immediately. But <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that you would say. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that our ears are having like the lower threshold of like detecting the conversions. But I had a few times when I missed the files and listened to our conversions as the real recordings and uh, didn't notice the difference. So yeah, it's sometimes tricky. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does sound a little bit scary. And in the news, I, I would say here in the US, we hear a lot about AI deepfakes that are used in scams or political propaganda. How does Respeacher make sure that this technology doesn't get abused for those more nefarious purposes? Right. Uh, yes, yeah, so there are two components of this. One is that whenever give anyone the actual code so that they can run the technology. So we keep everything in-house and uh, we always make sure to obtain a permission from the actor whose, whose voice we're uh, cloning. Mm, interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline for this Darth Vader project. So if I have done my math right and I have my dates correct, your team was working on this Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show right around the time that Ukraine was invaded by Russia. What sort of precautions and accommodations did you have to make to keep everybody safe? Right. Yeah. So um, probably like one of the most important parts of it happened exactly when the invasion happened. So what we did as a company is a couple of weeks before the invasion, we pretty much decided to kind of distribute the team a little bit. So we relocated part of the team to different um, to a different city, to Lviv, and um, Bogdan also went uh, to Lviv to work from there just in case, you know, something bad happens, uh, which unfortunately did happen. Did either of you personally have to relocate? Yes, I had to. Um, I think I stayed in Kiev for, for some time after this happened, but then I went to my parents' place for a couple of weeks, uh, for, I think for four weeks or something, and then I came back. Um, yeah, uh, I had to relocate to Lviv because currently I cannot come back to my hometown because of uh, occupations. Yeah, and, and Bogdan, I've, I heard that your hometown was actually invaded. Do you remember what was going on, what you were doing when you heard that news? I mean, what was that day like for you? Yeah, I remember you know, that I woke up at around uh, like four or five o'clock because I heard that my wife was talking with the, our family members and I heard that her voice is shaking and I just directly understood that it happened. We were shocked as everyone for the first half of the day but yeah um we were prepared i think that in a situation like this a lot of people would not be thinking about work but did you keep working during this time on this project yeah <laughs> yeah it surprised a lot of people but yeah every time when i think about these days uh, the first weeks of uh, full-scale invasion i still have more yes but no not to do that 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I would almost feel like it's the one thing that I would be able to control, right, is like what I'm doing with my work. Is, is that something that maybe you were thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the thing that came into my mind that like uh, our army is working at this moment and uh, like we have electricity and we have um, internet connection and um, you could um, you can even go outside and get some bread or water or whatever. So everything is working. And for me, it was like, you know, you know light when everything is dark <laughs> around. Well, all of your hard work on this project really paid off last month when this Darth Vader voice actually aired on the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. I mean, Bogdan, as the resident Star Wars fan, how did it feel to watch these voices air? It's it's a big mixture of, of feelings, like uh, with happiness and, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, fear and excitement and uh, all, of, all of this stuff. My wife said, like, do you understand that it's like forever? And like, ah, oh, come on. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's saved and captured. And yeah, it will be so- somewhere like in 20, 30, 100 years. So now that you have seen that your product works, are you getting interest from other Hollywood productions? Yeah, definitely. It, it's it's kind of a confirmation or sanity check from for other companies that we're not messing around and we're making a technology that's worth their attention. Dimitrio Bogdan, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Thanks a lot for having us here as well. Thank you. Dimitro Bielevitsov, Chief Technology Officer at Respeecher, based in Kyiv, Ukraine, and Bogdan Belayev, Sound Engineer at Respeecher, based in Lviv, Ukraine. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio News. Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. The next few days are the peak of spooky season. And we couldn't ask for a better palate cleanser than the death cap. It's an invasive mushroom that's been spreading across the world and has recently been found in the Mountain West. With me here to discuss the death cap is Madeline Beck, a reporter with the Mountain West News Bureau. She's based in Boise. Madeline, welcome to Science Friday. Great to be here. To start us off, what exactly is a death cap mushroom? That sounds very scary. Yeah, it definitely does. But when you look at it, it it doesn't look scary. I mean, some of the mycological folks and people that are really into funguses will be like, oh, that looks like a very stately mushroom or they have these lovely descriptions. But really, like for the layman, it it looks like a mushroom. It's got, you know, it's a couple inches tall. It's it's got a little cap. It's got gills. Um, The cap is a little greenish, yellowish with a little bit of a metallic sheen to it. It's got a thick stalk. I mean, it looks it looks like your standard issue mushroom. But for those in the know, obviously, this is the potentially deadliest mushroom for humans in the world. It's largely credited with killing more people than any other mushroom. Gotcha. And so where are these death caps usually found? And is that starting to change? They've been found a little bit on the East Coast, uh, but they really make the rounds on the West Coast. So they'd been initially identified there in the 30s or 40s in California. And now we just this last year found the first death cap in the Mountain West. Uh, And so that was here in Boise, Idaho. And now this year, the mushrooms are back again. 
That doesn't sound so great, and it sounds like just by appearances alone, it's pretty hard to tell whether you're looking at a death cap or something pretty harmless. Yeah, so it was originally identified by a woman named Susan Stacy here in Boise. She was part of a group called the Southern Idaho Mycological Association. She found it, you know, just on a walk. Uh, and she realized, you know, what it was, uh, brought it back to her group and said, like, oh, this is cool. Like, I found it in my book. It's, you know, an Amanita phylloides or a death cap. And people there were saying, like, no, it's not. That's a lot. Like, that's not <laughs> real. And they went over and looked at it and they're like, oh, Susan, you found a death cap. But like, <laughs> what is going on here? Uh, but as far as how they were for sure certain. Uh, an actual former pathologist is part of the group. His name was Mickey Meyer, and he helped confirm it using DNA analysis. We got between 99.85% and 100% match on the DNA uh, sequence. And so by anybody's criteria, it would, it would be a good solid match. All right. Well, you have me convinced. And what is the leading idea on how these mushrooms managed to migrate into the region? These kinds of mushrooms tend to have a symbiotic relationship with specific kinds of tree roots. And so in Boise, as in other places like Salt Lake and Denver, they imported trees from California decades ago as little saplings. But this specific kind of mushroom doesn't fruit, does not produce actual mushrooms above ground until trees are fully mature. So for these kinds of trees, it can take 30, 40, 50 years for that to happen, for them to actually reach maturity. Um, so now... All of a sudden, under these big old oak trees that were imported from California decades ago, that's where they're finding these mushrooms here now. Um, the question is, you know, will they spread to other native tree species? We really don't know how they're going to behave in this area. Mm, so what I'm hearing is that this is our parents and our grandparents' fault. Exactly. I mean, always <laughs> blame them. Always. No, but in all seriousness, what are people supposed to do now that these mushrooms are starting to pop up in the area? How do people avoid them? Can anything be done to get rid of them? Yeah, so I want to be uh, very clear just to start with that when it comes to, you know, this has popped up all around like Vancouver, British Columbia, and there they tried pretty much everything to get rid of it, including like fungicide, and really nothing they've done has helped. <laughs> that just adds more poisons to their environment and kills healthy, nice fungus. So what we've really been talking with all the people in mycological associations have said is you need to just know that it's here and know how to identify it. And with death caps, you can touch them. That's not going to hurt you. Uh, the concern is obviously ingestion uh, for people or even pets like dogs. Uh, so yeah, you can just pluck the mushrooms, throw it away. Not a problem. But if it is an actual death cap and it comes back year after year, you're probably going to have to do that year after year. Madeline Beck is a reporter with the Mountain West News Bureau. She's based in Boise. Thank you for being with me today. Great to be here. We have to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking about seafood, specifically one ingredient that some people say the world should be eating more of, jellyfish. We'll be right back after this short break. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Kathleen Davis. And I'm Catherine Wu. Okay, Kathleen, for the rest of the hour, we're taking a deep dive into seafood. Well, that is excellent news because I love seafood. If we are ever at a party together, Katie, you can find me by the cocktail shrimp platter. Not if I get there first. And it's true. The ocean is filled with delicious ingredients. But sadly, some of our favorite seafood might not be around forever thanks to climate change taking its toll on fisheries and all kinds of wild marine life. So scientists are thinking about what the future of food is going to look like, what ingredients we should be eating more or less of. And we've talked about this on the show before here at Science Friday. For the ocean, that could mean eating more items like kelp or oysters or mussels, which are all a good source of nutrients, and they can be sustainably harvested. And there's another seafood that's being encouraged as a sustainable food of the future. It's just a little more unfamiliar and maybe surprising to most of the world. It's jellyfish. I have to say, I have never eaten jellyfish before, and it's never really crossed my mind as something that I could be eating. I'll admit I have heard of this being a thing because my parents have definitely eaten jellyfish. They're from Taiwan, but I have not partaken myself. Jellyfish is actually pretty common in several countries in Asia, like China and Vietnam, but it hasn't quite broken into most of the Western world. Researchers in Italy are trying to change that. Here to tell us more about jellyfish cuisine are my guests. Agostino Petroni, a journalist based in Rome, he recently reported on this topic for Hawkeye magazine. And Dr. Antonella Leone, a researcher at the Italian National Research Council's Institute of Sciences of Food Production based in Lecce, Italy. Agostino and Antonella, welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Hello, good morning. Wonderful to have you both. So, can you tell us what exactly is the argument for jellyfish becoming a food of the future? More or less 10 years ago, we started to, to study jellyfish as a new resource for different uses. And uh, we find that several species could be useful as, uh, as a food. This was strange in our, uh, in our countries, but you know that jellyfish is largely used as, uh, as food in, uh, in Asian countries. And there is an increase of population of jellyfish. Most could be suitable as a, as a source of food or food ingredients. Got it. So it sounds like this would kind of kill two birds or maybe two jellies with one stone. Jellyfish are taking over and we could eat them as a sustainable resource for ourselves. Antonella, you had mentioned that there is already a little bit of jellyfish cuisine going on in certain Asian countries. Agostino, how much jellyfish does the world consume as a whole right now? And is that expected to increase? At the moment, there is a, um, an estimate of 19 countries that harvest about 1 million tons of uh, jellyfish every year for a global industry uh, worth about $160 million. Um, some say that this will grow, uh, but uh, 
uh, it is not as easy as uh, as that because, for example, in, uh, in the European Union, in the Mediterranean, right now, jellyfish cannot be consumed and sold legally because they're not uh, labeled as safe food yet. On this part of the world, is uh, especially in the Mediterranean, in the European Union, we don't know yet what uh, the market could be. But as Antonella was explaining me, there is already some interest from uh, some entrepreneurs that would like to take this on. Uh, right, Antonella? Yes, yes, there is a, a lot of interest. Fishermen and uh, local industry, food industries are interested in exploit jellyfish also because they represent for fishermen mainly an issue. They uh, often uh, are in the in the net of fishermen, and they cannot be used, cannot be sold as 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 uh, as a food. So many many fishermen call us uh, asking to 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 be able to to use this uh, biomass, but also um, chefs and restaurants uh, owners uh, are interested in. Uh, the problem is, uh, as uh, Agostino rightly said, jellyfish are um, considered novel food in Europe. They cannot be consumed and fished for food until the European Food Safety Authority will authorize the consumer of this uh, biomass. Got it. So just one piece of this bigger puzzle. All right, Antonella, let's let's dive into some of the minutiae of actually cooking and eating jellyfish. So I understand that your lab is currently trying to learn how to do this in some optimal ways. What are some challenges that you've run into so far and what have you learned? Uh, regarding the... Uh type of jellyfish, the species of jellyfish that could be eaten, and the studies about this. Our role as a researcher is to study as much as possible the characteristics, the safety and quality characteristics of different jellyfish and provide scientific evidence that several species can be eaten, can be consumed, provide also information about the processing for food production or processing for extraction of biotic compounds or to enhance characteristic of these uh, products. That is our role as a researcher. After that, when we uh, identified one or two species useful for food, we can contact chef and ask to improve or to, to, to check the feasibility of a new recipe, for example, by using jellyfish as main ingredient. And that was done with several chefs and published in a fun cookbook. It is really important to study the biology and ecology of all jellyfish, including species that are not human interest, because we need to know as much as possible about the biodiversity present in our seas. After that, we can study in particular for different topics. After that, we can transfer our knowledge to the stakeholder or public as, as we are doing now to communicate our results. 
Got it. But there is plenty of science to be had when you're studying how to cook a jellyfish, how to preserve a jellyfish, even just how to prep a jellyfish for something that's ultimately destined for a human stomach. Antonella, can you tell me a little bit more about how you can cook something that is 95% water like a jellyfish? And how do you preserve that for shipment and prep for cooking? There is different uh, processing. Uh, the, the traditional uh, system uh, from Asia use alum, which is a mixture of uh, salts of aluminium, to preserve uh, jellyfish, to eliminate the water. This process uh, is not so safe because aluminium uh, can remain in the final products uh, and uh, can have a bad effect on uh, human health. Uh, so we patented a new process that use calcium salts. This is more safe and produce um, a new product very different from the product from ASEAN. This helps also the chef to prepare a jellyfish from fresh jellyfish. I'm Catherine Wu and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're joining us now, we're talking about jellyfish and if we should be eating more of them. What is it like to handle a jellyfish, to prepare it? What does it feel like before you prepare it? What does it feel like after? And I'm even wondering, is it the texture of celery, an apple, chicken? What is this like? So with Antonella, we went together to one of the restaurants that work with her to try new recipes in Lecce. You know, Antonella went to the... To the to the freezer of uh, her, her lab and then took two jellyfish that were frozen because we didn't have time and it was not planned to go out at sea to fish them. And um, with a letter uh, accompanying the, the box, we went to the restaurant and uh, met the chef. And the letter was to allow the chef to cook it illegally as part of the, of the research program. The chef, first of all, lets the jellyfish defrost under the running water and after about 20 minutes, he started handling them. You know, the first step that I saw was to put the jellyfish into boiling water in order to, to cook them. And um, as I described that into, into the article, I received actually quite a few messages from, uh, from readers on Twitter and other, and other platforms asking, okay, yes, you're cooking it, but what about uh, the venom, you know, that everybody's scared about? And so since we are here all together, I wanted to ask Antonella, what happens when you cook the jellyfish and uh, what happens to the venom that stings people? How do we get rid of that? Uh, yes, we have to know what is the the kind of venom of each species of jellyfish in order to consider what kind of process is able to eliminate or quench the the venom. In the case of uh, jellyfish that Agostino tried, it is rhizostoma pulmo. Rhizostoma pulmo has a venom that uh, we demonstrated was uh, not stable at high temperature. So the treatment with high temperatures is uh, enough to eliminate the venom. But this is not the same for all species of jellyfish. Ah, okay. Thank you. So which means 
And people at home, please don't catch a jellyfish and cook it yourself, boiling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no risk of that for me, I promise. <laughs> um, well, so Antonella, I understand you're uh, the author of the European Jellyfish Cookbook. Great band name, by the way. Um, both of you, you know, tell me a little bit what it's like to eat jellyfish. You know, first, what does it look like on the plate and what sorts of recipes does it end up in? Sweet, savory, salty? What, <laughs> what is all that like? Jellyfish have a main characteristics, sensory characteristics, to be very salty. Uh, we made also a, a study, uh, now it is published, the study on the lexicon on the sensory analysis of jellyfish. And we made the sensory analysis by professional panel and um, the characteristic is to be very salty. And the other characteristic is uh, the sea flower but more similar to, for example, uh, seafood like oysters. Yeah, I agree. It, it did taste like, uh, like oyster. You know, when, uh, when we went to the restaurant and the chef prepared uh, the jellyfish in a, in a kind of a tomato soup, I mean, it, it tasted just fine. It tasted great and uh, it tasted fishy. Of course, if you, if you are a fan of uh, fish and chips, so you're looking for a fish which doesn't really taste like fish, then this might be a little bit of a problem when you try, um, you know, the, the jellyfish because it really tastes like the sea. But if you like instead, you know, kind of like stronger flavor, uh, you might appreciate jellyfish as well. And what was kind of interesting is that it is pretty crunchy, like a, I don't know, like a, like a calamari. When you fry calamari and you and you you know bite into it, it it's kind of like that, or like a piece of uh, of fat from from a steak, more or less. Yeah, that's the that's the texture. And um, but yes, and of course. One of the of of the dishes that I tried was the fried jellyfish, but of course, you know, as many of the people I interviewed that tried jelly uh, fried jellyfish told me, you know, anything that is fried is good. I can relate to that. So I'm hearing about some crunchy, salty, fishy, oysterish food, and it's delicious, deep fried. I'm certainly curious. Agostino, say we get a lot of people interested in this and say the jellyfish market really takes off. Could there be a downside to that? Could we end up overfishing jellies? Well, there, there are some cases where this actually happened. Uh, as I mentioned in the article, in, uh, this actually happened in Mexico where fishermen turned to fishing jellyfish because you know, there was high demand from uh, from Asia and uh, all of a sudden they overexploited the, the stocks of those jellyfish. Some colleagues uh, consider jellyfish more sustainable of other uh, fish or seafood because uh, we catch only the adult stage because jellyfish have two stages. One is the adult stage that is the jellyfish and one is the polyp stage that remain on, on the bottom of the sea and is able to produce more jellyfish. But uh, this is not it, it is not demonstrated that uh, all jellyfish all the, the fishery is uh, sustainable in all conditions 
So we have to be very careful when we talk about sustainability, because we need before to study the life cycle of each involved animal and the ecosystem in which the the, the animal is and made studies uh, along the years uh, in order to consider how much we can fish of this particular species in order to maintain the species for the next generation. Right. And certainly human practices that have led to overfishing for other species and human activities that have led to climate change are part of what got us into this situation in the first place. So we can't afford to make those same mistakes. Well, I think that is all we have time for. I really hope I get to try jellyfish one day, but thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Agostino Petroni is a journalist based in Rome. He recently reported on this topic for Hawkeye Magazine. You can find a link to the story on our website. Dr. Antonella Leone is a researcher at the Italian National Research Council's Institute of Sciences of Food Production, based in Lecce, Italy. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. Send feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover too. I'm Kathleen Davis. And I'm Catherine Wu. Have a great weekend.